<laughs> thank you, Gary. And thanks to all of you for expressing your appreciation for your father. Um, that, that, that means a lot to me. I'm going to mention my dad in just a minute, but let me ask you this. Has your faith ever faltered? Have you ever doubted in the midst of your belief? Have you ever wondered why their faith is so much stronger and your faith is so fragile? Here's my hope for today. I'd like to move you out of a space that feels like waffling. I'd like to help you move into a space where you have complete confidence uh, in what you believe. Today, in 25 minutes from now, I'm going to ask you, and you're going to have the capacity and the capability to take a step that allows you to experience, get this, all the promises of God. That's my hope for today. I want to clear away the obstacles so you can take a step and experience all that God has ever promised. That's my hope. But first, take a look at this guy popping a picture up on the screen. And you can't tell from this picture, but at this season of life, my father was, along with the engineering firm that he worked with, developing what would eventually become anti-lock brakes. They weren't making them for cars. This is late 60s, early 70s. They were making this and originating this and creating patents and inventing new ways to keep train wheels from slipping when trains were trying to stop. I don't know if you've ever had to stop a train, but you can imagine what it's like for uh, a thing of megaton weight on top of highly polished steel wheels on top of a highly polished rail. Before this technology was invented by this engineering group, you basically had to start stopping a train as soon as you left the last city. But now, because of this, trains are going to be able to stop in a much shorter distance, in a much shorter time. And it will eventually be the technology that every one of you use in your car. How cool is that? That was my dad inventing that stuff. I looked up how to stop a train on Wikipedia this week, and you know what it said? Friction. And I was like, no, it's not friction. It's not friction at all. There's hardly any friction there at all. You need the technology to maximize what little tiny friction you have to stop a train. It's not friction that stops a train. It's my dad. There's only two people that can stop a train, Superman and my dad. That's pretty much it. Which, and they're kind of both the same. This is the dad I knew, though. Look at him there. He's just he's grilling, probably in 1968 or something. This is what brought my dad the greatest joy. It's this space of family provision and enjoyment. All that other stuff was awesome, but it paled compared to this. Super proud of my dad. I miss my mom and dad right now. Like so many of you that can't be around your loved ones, particularly if they're older. I haven't seen my dad since his 80th birthday back in January. And they're not even going to be able to make our vacation. This is a 45-year tradition that we've had. We can't go. Miss them like crazy. I'm thankful also for something else that my father built. And it was the characteristic within me to believe. How to believe. How to trust. He probably has no idea that he taught me that, but he did. And here's how he did it. He did it by tenaciously building my trust in him. And then he leveraged that 
trust to build trust in myself. Do you see what I mean? Here, here's what I'm saying. He built my trust in him, and then because I trusted him, I believed what he said about me. Can I just mention this real quick, dads, men, uh, your kids, whether biological or adopted or spiritual, or if you're a mentor or a coach or whatever, they need you to tell them what's true about them. Maybe more so in today's culture than ever before. They need to know what's true. They need to know what's not true. They need to know what's good. They need to know what's bad. They need to know what's right and what's wrong. But here's the rub. None of your words matter very deeply if you cannot be believed. If your life is hypocritical, if you can't admit your mistakes, if, if you don't acknowledge your need for the mercy of God, you won't lose your capacity to pass along instructions or intellectual data. But you do lose your ability to be trusted. And if you can't be trusted, you can't truly teach. The Bible calls out a very particular qualification for leaders in the church, and it's this, able to teach. We tend to think that that means like this, with some sort of public speaking skill or the ability to take some content and transfer it to other people. But in an Eastern viewpoint, where, where, the, where these words were penned, able to teach means this. Your life qualifies you to be heard and to be trusted. Able to teach means you're trusted, you're true, you're honest, and I will listen to you. That's what it means to be able to teach. I, I, this week, I was trying to think of what could possibly be more important than being able to believe in someone and to be believed in. Thank you for being believable, Pop. And happy Father's Day. I love you and I miss you. We'll see you as soon as we can. So today, as you might imagine, we're continuing our look at a thing called the Apostles' Creed. It's a basic core belief statement of the Christian faith, written in uh, like the middle of the 4th century AD. And other than a few words like sitteth <laughs> and thence, a traditional version of that reading still goes pretty smoothly. And here's how it goes. If you've got it in front of you, maybe you do, maybe we have it on the screen, read along, say it out loud, reaffirm it, if this is what you believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that is the universal church, the, all the believers in Christ, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness, uh, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's the core statement of what we believe as Christians. Our whole existence as Christians is built on belief. Why is that? Why must we believe? Well, if you look at God's story, 
And you can read it in the best-selling book still today ever. You can look through that book and you can see God's story and you can see ups and downs. You can see failures and successes. You see a great deal of reality. You see contradictions and things you don't expect and surprises and shocking things and amazing things. And through it all, riddled without exception, you see extravagant promises of God. And there's a distinction. Only certain people experience the joy of the promises of God. Others in the Bible just know about those promises. And here's the distinction. Here is what separates. It is belief. God has chosen faith to be the currency of his kingdom. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? The whole thing sounds pretty conditional, doesn't it? For an impartial God, this seems very conditional. But here's the reality. God's love is unconditional, but his responses to us are not. Consistently, again, throughout the scriptures, God's extravagant promises are predicated on a very simple, small word, and it is if. If we believe, we experience what he promises. If you have faith, you can see the glory of God. If I trust, I can be saved. If we don't believe, if we don't trust, we have basically refused the basic currency of the kingdom, and we can't experience the divine life. Living without faith within God's creation is like going to the grocery store with no money. The groceries are there for you, but if you don't have money, if you don't use the currency that we have, you don't get the stuff. So let's talk about faith. Let's let's talk about what this whole thing is like and how you do it so that you can take that step. Number one, I want to remind you this. You can't make it through life without believing and trusting. And I'm not even talking about religion. It is at the core of your life. Faith is at the core of life. You you realize this, of course, right? You exercise, no matter who you are, tons of faith, tons of trust, tons of belief every single day. The chair you're sitting in is an example of faith that you exhibit. You sat down in that chair and you trusted and believed that it was going to hold you up. You drive your car, you go through an intersection with a green light, and you are betting everything. You are faithfully trusting that everybody at that intersection is going to do what they are intended to do. Did you check to make sure you have a brake pedal when you got in your car? I bet you didn't. Did you check the hydraulic fluid? Nope. Did you check your brake pads? Uh Uh-uh. You just drove, and then when it came time to stop, not too early, but just in the nick of time, you went for the brake, and it was there, and it stopped you. That's a ton of faith. That's a ton of belief. You practice faith just going to sleep. Have you ever thought about about that? Every night you let yourself slip into unconsciousness for six to eight hours. At night. And you're fully trusting that sort of the general civility of the world is going to hold. That people aren't just going to barge into your house when you're sleeping. 
You're trusting that your locks will hold. You're believing that your bed will hold up. You are faithfully hoping your bladder holds out until morning. This is all while you sleep. Now, I'm being cute, but I'm making a point, right? You exhibit, no matter who you are, a lot of faith, a lot of trust, a lot of belief. That is God's economy. He created this world. That should be a little clue to you, whoever you are, that God is real because faith is real. <laughs> and you need it, and you use it every day. God created this whole thing. And it doesn't just take faith to believe in Him. It takes faith to exist in this life. You do have faith. Number two. Faith and belief and trust are built over time. You build them. I remember learning to drive. At night, for the first time, and you experience this, the lights, they shine out there a little bit of ways, but not very far. And if the road's going to turn, you can't see it. And I remember saying to my mom or my dad, or whoever was next to me when I was driving at the time, I can't see the road up there. And, and they said, it'll be there when you get there. It'll be okay. Just, it's okay. That's, that's, that's crazy. Do you remember the first time you flew on an airplane? Most of us probably don't. But that's a crazy notion. You climb onto an aluminum tube with a chair bolted to it, and you strap yourself into it, and then you fly up into the air and then land again? Who told you that was a good idea? Why do you feel comfortable doing that? Because you've built faith up over time. It's almost comical to watch an adult that's never flown before. I'm sorry if that's you. But it is really interesting to go, oh my gosh, this person has no, they are freaked out. Why? Because that's what you should be when you get on an airplane, unless you have built faith, trust, belief over time. My father built trust first in him. How did he do it? He caught me. When I ran out the front door when I was five or six years old and leapt off of the retaining wall, to him it was just getting out of his car with his briefcase and his drawings. He would drop them all and he would catch me. He built my trust. He even built things that I could trust. He built a boat, like from scratch, a wooden boat. And then we went, put it on the water, and got in it. And I could see he was trustworthy. That was built over time. He always caught me. He built things that worked and floated, and we stood in them, and we played in them. You don't suddenly have a bunch of faith. It's built over time. One time the disciples came to Jesus because they were trying to do some things, and they said, we couldn't do it. Why couldn't we do that? And he said, because, it's you, it's because you have so little faith. He said, he said, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move it, and it'll move from here to there. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is my opinion. My interpretation of that is, when will you be able to move the mountain? My thought is, not right now. But over time, a mustard seed of faith will grow to the kind of faith where you can move a mountain. It is built over time. Nothing will be impossible for you. Three, there are reasonable grounds for faith. There's a, there's a place for reason and intellect within the faith realm, but it's only the starting point, and it's only grounds for faith. You can't find your way to experiencing the promises of God and, 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 and discovering the existence of God purely from reason. But we often start there. 
with everything. You knock on the chair first. You pound on it. You look at the construction of it, and then you sit. So you, 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 there's grounds for you. That, that looks like it could hold me. You date before you marry. I think this could work out. There, there's grounds that this could, this could work. You hang out with lots of friends before you choose one to trust your secret to, and you trust it to someone because you have grounds for it. You've, ex- you've seen something. God gives us the clay to work with. For example, in Romans chapter 1, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That's why we start the creed with, we believe in God the Father, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We look around at what he has created and what he has made, and we have grounds to believe there's a creator behind it. Jesus is a huge part of this grounds for belief. Jesus made God more concrete to us. He showed up with shocking news, basically. The gospel really is this in its simplest form. He said, hey, I got good news for you. God can be seen and heard and known and reconciled to. And you're looking at him. We have grounds for the existence of God, not only by what we see, but who Jesus is. Because Jesus went on to put action behind his words. He did miracles that were indescribable. He handled power in a way no human should really be able to handle it. He exhibited uncommon mercy, and of course, he was resurrected from the dead. Can you argue with all of that? Can you look at creation and think of another option for it? You sure can. Can you look at Jesus and and explain some things away? You absolutely can. But the point is, you're not going to find your way to God through rationality, but there's grounds for your faith. There's something. You can knock on it, and it's reasonable. It is reasonable. We're not aiming at certainty through science and rationality. We're only aiming at a reasonable amount of evidence. Remember, faith is God's currency. Rationale and science is like the banking system. It's predictable and it's precise and it's useful, but it's not the currency. The world works a certain way, has provable dimensions, is very cool, but faith is the currency of God. So, they're already a part of your life. Faith is already a part of your life, part of everybody's life. It's built over time, and we have grounds for it. Fourth, faith is developed and expanded through testing. Eventually, you got to sit in the chair. Eventually, you got to exchange the wedding vows. Sooner or later, you got to trust a friend with the secret. I tested my dad quite a bit, right? I leapt off the wall. I had to leave the wall for the test to be complete. I had to get into the boat for the test to be complete. I never thought of it consciously that I can recall. But I inherently learned through testing that I could count on that man. Mom too, but it's, it's Father's Day, so. With God, it is no different. None of what is certain, 
Nothing is certain until it's tested. Until faith is exercised. To exercise faith is to test God. It's the same. And he invites it. He says, you will find your certainty through testing me. We we get our giving principles from the Old Testament, Malachi, in this very, very concept. He says, bring your whole tithe into the storehouse. Bring your first fruits, the stuff that you are depending on the most for your sustenance. Give it to me. Test me in this. And see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Test me. Put your faith into action. James says faith by itself, not accompanied by action, it's just dead. See, here's the thing. We're not called to have faith. You're not called to have faith. You're called to exercise faith, always. We don't just have it, we exercise it. What you have is an opportunity for faith to be tested. But you have to take it. That is the currency of God. Faith. Five, our faith must be activated toward God's aim, not ours. Right? We activate our faith. We say, I'm going to put my faith into action, but I'm going to put it into action aimed at not what I want, but what God wants. Jesus very famously said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only the one who does the will of the Father. What is implied there is not my will, but thy will be done, which is exactly how Jesus taught us to pray. It is when we align our faith actions with God's intentions and God's aims. I hear it so often. I'm in the middle of a very honest, humble, and wonderful email exchange this week about these very things. I hear this. I've been hoping for these things. I've been praying for these things. And I've been, I've been exercising as much faith as I can, but nothing is happening. The first question is what you're hoping for, what you're wanting, what you're aiming for. Is it what God wants? It's his economy, and it's his mission, and it's his world. We exercise our faith. We use the, 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 the currency that he's given us to accomplish his will, not our own. Sometimes we try to activate our faith, and we question the existence of God, and we question the depth of our own faith because we're not getting the answers, we're not enjoying the promises, it's because we're not aimed at what God is aimed at. Here's the kind of things God aims at. You can see it all through the New Testament. Here's just a couple examples. In Romans chapter 5, God says, we hope for the glory of God, right? We, talk about we hope for the promises and the presence of God. And we hope that, in, that, our glory, that we, we also glory in our sufferings because you know that our sufferings produce perseverance. And our perseverance character and our character hope. Some of the things that God is aiming for is your own depth of endurance, your own depth of character, your own sense of hope. 
Galatians chapter 5, the famous verse about this, the fruit of the Spirit, which could easily be, be, be looked at as the fruit of, the, of faith. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the general aims of God. Very seldom are the aims of God the things that we want, the things that we're after. You've got to get your activated faith aimed in the direction of God. So here we are. Here we are. This is where I promised you we would show up. A place where you have all that is required of you to take a step. A step that will put you into the space of experiencing the presence and the promises of God. And here's the context. Let me give you the context again real quickly. First of all, faith is always a part of life. Don't be afraid of it. It is built over time. So it's going to be small to start. It's grounded in reasonability. Okay, it's not perfected in reasonability. And it's developed through testing. It's developed through your activating it. And it's useless if it's not aimed at what God is aimed at. So that's the context, right? So here's what you do. You say yes to the creed. You say yes to the components, the basic components of our faith. You say yes to the character of God. You say yes to the character and the work of Jesus. And you say yes to the Holy Spirit. And then you burn that bridge. You never go back. This is the primary problem. It's not hard to take the step. What is hard is staying there when it gets crazy. But once you walk across that bridge, you should burn it. So that when everything collapses, when the world's telling you you're crazy, when there seems to be no hope, you go, but this is what I believe. This is what I believe. No one needs faith when everything's good and God feels like he's close. Faith is made for the widest gaps. It's made for the deepest valleys. It's made for the hardest climbs and the darkest times. So when you are there in those spaces and there's no sign of God in your mind, there's no sign of the end. It's just, it's too much. You remember Jesus' words. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? And I'm telling you, the if you believe part is when it's hardest to believe. That is when your faith grows. That is where the presence of God is. That is where the promises are experienced. Once you say yes to the basic tenets of the Christian faith, it might be a long road. It might be a hard road. It probably will be. You just stay there for the rest of your life and you will enjoy the promises like never before. And you will live with an eternal hope for the final promise of presence with God forever in Jesus. I'll, I'll leave you with this verse from Hebrews chapter 11, the last part of it. Let your faith be the certainty of the things you don't see. Just do it and just stay there your whole life. You can do it.
go for it.